0: Welcome to Forward,
1: the podcast of the Forward-Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. This is your home for progressive, thought-provoking, real talk in the chiropractic profession. Featuring the legends, the innovators, and the thought leaders that
0: move our profession forward. And now your host, Dr.
1: Bobby Mabee.
0: All right, everyone, welcome to Forward, the podcast for Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. I am the host of this show, Dr. Bobby, maybe until they fire me and pick somebody else better to do it. Our sponsors for this podcast are the JNAP, the Smart Chiropractor, China Gel, the T Tool, ChiroUp.com, Drop Release, Gestalt Education, Hyper Ice, Chiropractic Success Academy, Conquer Cleaner, and we have partners in this endeavor that are world spine care and the carl research fellows my special guest today is speaking at our most recent because we do one every year our most recent virtual summit for 2022 uh which is by the time you listen to this it's either right about to happen so you should go and try to register as soon as you hear this at forwardthinkingcairo.com, or you just missed it but you should still Uh, stay tuned and check out ForwardThinkingCairo.com because we usually rebroadcast these summits uh, weeks after so that the people who miss them have an opportunity to listen to the content again. Uh, And if you don't know how these summits work, uh, we basically at the FTCA take members of our community and members of our profession that we would really love to hear and learn from. And then we ask them to join us and volunteer content uh, so that you can learn some new things, hear from some new faces, not just the same old seminar speakers you hear over and over again, the same old names, we want new fresh names, new fresh ideas, and highlight new brilliant people. One of those uh, folks that we are talking to today is Dr. Michael Lovitch. He's got all kinds of letters after his name, which I want to ask him about. Uh, But he's talking about a very specific topic that is probably more germane to the functional neurology field uh in this virtual summit and we're going to talk functional neurology and some other things in this talk so dr levitch
1: welcome for having me it's a pleasure to finally be on here
0: yeah and you have also spoke with the ftca before when we did uh clinical uh clinical applications of pain science and we had a great talk about pain science in dallas texas but it was right after they had their tornado in dallas we were supposed to do it at parker university and the tornado kind of ravaged everything <laughs> as tornadoes do that's that's what a tempest does
1: yeah apparently weather uh makes people not want to go outside
0: yeah we've had that streak this last two not just the uh, pandemic but that tornado and then last year we were supposed to have an event in new orleans and there was a hurricane so we're just going to chill out for a while and do virtual events <laughs> <laughs> i don't blame you that's for sure i have this specific question for you and you're gonna to have to talk to me like i'm the two bobs from the movie office space and i've called you into the office and i'm gonna say dr lovich functional neurology what
1: is it that you actually do so think of it like this uh i know you're familiar with rehab models and rehab mindset for a physical standpoint right sure uh Imagine it like this, Uh, when you have somebody coming in with a scapular uh, synkinesis, you're going to rehab that that may not be, quote unquote, the traditional physical therapy rehab model, because you're going to look at it and break it down to, okay, there's normal motion of the scapula, there's abnormal motion of the scapula, and there's within normal limits motion of the scapula. If you take an athlete that's coming over, that's an overhand thrower. You're going to want to get that scapula being as precise and accurate as possible, whereas uh, other people might say, "Hey, if it's pain-free and can generally move somewhat according to normal planes of movement, that's good enough for government work." So, from a what functional neurology is, is the same thing. It's the, it's doing the same neurological exam. Yes, we focus to the nth degree on all the little minutiae in the exam because we're really trying to find the things that are different, but it's doing a very, very same, if we'll call a similar neurological exam that we learned at you're also a university of Western States grad, right? Yes. Yeah. So the same exam that you learned that I learned and what we're doing is we're saying the things that are within normal limits, instead of just saying positive and negative, if we understand the physiology behind the test, what if it's in if if it's within normal limits, but it's not within normal for what their brain needs it to do? So we can say I'll add up all the positives and negatives and get our diagnosis just like anybody else. But we can say, you know what? Sure, your eyes can move in the H fields of gaze, but you have significant amounts of something called a catch-up saccade or a saccadic intrusion, which is a sign of frontal lobe issues that is popping in, you can get your eyes across, but what if that's the thing that's causing your headache? And then we're able to look at that, make reasonable assumptions and appropriate guesses, and then start using the same rehabilitative model of observe something, try a therapy, see what changed. And based on their response, have some sort of clinical approach and guess of what pathway did we activate? And is it the right thing to do or is it the wrong thing to do? And then we little by little uh, work our way towards the most appropriate exercises that makes the patient objectively move better. So you're still using exercise rehabilitation as a tool. For some, right. I had a patient in today who I'm pretty sure she has a spinal cord concussion and we had to use, physical rehab exercises because we had to use activation of muscles and eccentric activity of muscles to create activation but instead of saying we need these muscle patterns to happen we're going upstream to say we need these cerebellar pathways and these subcortical pathways and these uh, frontal lobe pathways to activate in this pattern and where it's just target taking a So from a physical rehab exercise, you're taking the same exercises or similar exercises, but winding it all the way back up to cortical areas and understanding how that implies. But majority of what we do is visual exercises and vestibular exercises. Stripey sock. So it's I'm stripy sock, eye movements, uh, head movements, slow or fast, depending on what we're trying to do. Uh, And we're just putting it all together into a, an approach of, and I use a little bit of an order of operations where I say we need to work on vestibular first, then we work on visual, then we work on muscles and joints, because if our body mapping is skewed, and we start working on body mapping, then our, then once we change the way the visual and vestibular inputs are, are affecting the brain, then the work we did body mapping may have been wasted effort because now we have to remap it again. Does that make sense? Right. The movement is uh, an output. Exactly. And from the same perspective, a trailing indicator. Exactly. And there's two, there's two major outputs of the brain movement and thought and emotion. And that ties into what we're talking, what what my presentation is on this weekend, which is how do you work with the motor outputs that instead of create a motion from through a muscle, create a conscious experience through your mind, right? With with a dysfunctional
0: experience, often translating into pain, or potentially translating into pain,
1: and, or anxiety, or depression, sure, or, sure, sure, all that stuff. Yep. Exactly. So in your opinion, I'm wondering what
0: what do you because you've got years of experience doing this, what do you specifically or functional neurology in general really really knock out of the park condition-wise that the average, you know, average I'm using air quotes there, chiropractor cannot or does
1: not. Like where do you excel? I know you're a big fan of the air quotes Yes. So, so the thing that chiro- that functional neurologists, chiropractic neurologists, I call them chiropractic functional neurologists, because we don't want to give any any idea that we're that we're like medical doctors doing this. Sure. We want to make sure that we're not mismanaging expectations. Post concussion syndrome and concussions and pots, mm-hmm. I would say, are they are they that we that we as Uh, what's called neurologists really do well. And the reason why is not because chiropractors can't manage them. It's just if a patient can, if you, so, I mean, I'm so part of the alphabet soup behind my name is being board certified in sports medicine, which also comes in contact with a lot of sports related concussion. But as I'm walking around the conference and I'm reading the case studies and I'm seeing big cheer success for getting a, a what I would refer to compared to what I see in my office as a non-complicated concussion, better in six months, I'm sitting there like, yay, go team, but did the patient have to suffer an extra five months? Yeah. So, uh, and uh, analytics that we're providing that a non-complicated concussion, we see about 70% improvement in two weeks. Yeah. What would be the natural history on a non-complicated concussion anyways? So two weeks for a, for a concussion, the first two weeks or 10 days is what is in the literature mm-hmm. is when it self resolves. I'm talking about for the ones that don't self resolve, they have symptoms post the two weeks. They are now in the post-concussion phase and you am going to use your air quotes for that. Sure now we're talking about typical resolution for that is usually ongoing chronic just manage the symptoms yeah send to psych if they have some sort of depression Send to pt or chiropractic if they have ongoing musculoskeletal pain uh that's the approach or send to neuro if they need to have some sort of um you know sometimes anti- antidepressants and that are managed to their neurologist instead of the psychiatrist so why all the back padding for six months, do you think? I just think it's um, when you're looking at it from an, like the, the order of operations that I mentioned before. I think if you're using a musculoskeletal approach, you're using one sensory stimulus into the brain that could yeah. be effective. But you're not you, you're not doing that whole like you're not viewing the I think of it as, as a circle. It's not a root cause mechanism like here's your problem. There's a circle and you got to, if you hop on multiple points of the circle at the same time, then I feel like it gets better quicker. The other part is, and this is one of the things that I mentioned in the presentation is sometimes the appropriate uh, treatment for a musculoskeletal injury is an inappropriate treatment for a brain issue. Well, sure. And this is where, this is where people grab the neck, swing it for the upper decks because they got a whiplash. But then you see their pupil blow, then they get up sitting, then they sit up and they're kind of like dazed and out of it. And they, you talk to them, and they're kind of just like numb at that point. And you're like, okay, cool. That'll settle. You'll be fine. But that might be counterproductive when you're viewing it through a brain lens.
0: Yeah. Or you fire up your YouTube and just smack their patella and you're like, just randomly smacking their patella. It'll be fine. Just breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. I mean, they're not just for a concussion but there's so many conditions where there are multiple places to jump on the highway here right but one yeah. hammer one hammer one cure like okay exactly. so we're gonna we're gonna fix that road with the one tool we have and of course I guess a broken clock could be right twice a day and you can go I fixed it with the hammer I have and it got better in six months Yay, us or you can say maybe there was a different tool you could have used in that process right
1: and that's why, and you see me on FTCA all the time saying, just PM me, let's hop on a phone call, let's go through the case, I'll spend the time. Because, I mean, somebody asked me recently, what's the main thing I learned, work uh, owning a business and managing employees, what's the one thing you would do differently if you ran a different business? I would say, no doctor ego. Yeah. Uh, But that's the whole reason for why I'm always on there being like, call me, let's just chat it out. I will go through all your exam findings. I will teach you how to do the exam stuff. I'll hop on FaceTime with you. I just want to make sure that if they can get better with a musculoskeletal approach, do it. It saves them a ton of money. They don't need to spend money out of pocket. They don't, they can use their insurance. Um, And it might be cost benefit wise, really good. But if you're seeing a case that's just not changing and you're going past like the past the one, two month mark, and they're still having these post-concussive symptoms, hop on the phone. Let's see if we can give you some simple exercises that make them feel a little better so at least they're not just lingering and waiting. Okay, yeah.
0: So hopefully as people's careers and practice uh, develop and mature, you would think that that would be the generalized approach to all things right is like i'm going to do it my way and i have an expectation for how much time my way should work whatever your way is and if it doesn't it's time to take it up the tree right (laughs) but how many people don't do that i don't there are a lot of people that are quick to think as far as like uh consults, ortho consult, neuro consult, but what about within the profession, the experts that are within the profession as well? Do you get, do you, do you feel like you're getting the appropriate amount of interprofessional referrals that you probably should at this point in time?
1: Not even close. No, most of my referrals come from medical doctors. Mm -hmm. They come from physical therapists. They come from massage therapists. Chiropractors are among the worst at referring. Why do you think that and is? Well, that's I like softball,
0: I, right? Like I just put that up on the T for you. I assume, yeah, there, I assume that this is how I do things. I assume there's going to be an answer. And then I set it up on the T and let you hit that answer for me.
1: Well, I mean, I've been in FTCA since like, its inception. <laughs> you know, I usually have an answer for things. So that's fair. <laughs> um, I try to make it more of like an idea and not my opinion. But, you know, sometimes sure. when you're rage typing, it happens. Um, I find that there's, I can classify chiropractors into two groups, recent grad or recent graduates, which are either going to be, yeah, I don't want to touch this. I'm going to send them over to you because they already have this collaborative mindset involved or mm-hmm. the new group of, I need the money. I, I want to, I need to make sure that I, uh, that if I, I, send the patient to you, it may make le- me look worse. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of that, that insecurity. And then there's the older doc group, which I would say does not refer at all and the reason why is because and you you run a lot of business seminars you understand that when you run a business a lot of it just you automate the entire thing and at some point if your system is so automated you yourself become part of the automation i was speaking to some doctors on the board in in uh, massachusetts saying hey i'm here to help like i'm trying this new thing in chiropractic called playing well with others let's mm-hmm. see how it can go and they're like this is great but i don't see any of those things and i was like sure and then i, I was working in the office with one of them and you better believe how I, I see the patients walking down the hallway i'm like yeah no that's a that's a thing it's <laughs> you get a you get into your ways and you're like you know what i manage my risk cuz sometimes if you don't see it it doesn't you're not at risk for it right yeah a practical a
0: practical
1: explanation of that is around here in portland oregon every
0: patient's got a rib out so you you just previously mentioned scapular dyskinesia that doesn't exist in portland oregon that's called a rib out yeah so i mean if, <laughs> you, if you came to do a talk in portland about scapular dyskinesia the doctors would be like there i don't i've never seen that i never heard of that but I've got all these patients with ribs out.
1: (laughs) Unless you get Ryan DeBell in there with his T tool. And then all of a sudden you see, you you get like all the people who know that there's, it's not just a rib popping out of the woodwork Being like, Oh wait, yeah. (laughs) There's quite a bit of a confirmation bias going on. And that, uh,
0: that can lead that, that. Wait, is it, does the confirmation bias lead to the ego or does the ego stuff lead to the confirmation bias?
1: What do you think? I would go with the latter um, because I think it all comes down to my whole approach on the, on on that term that I love, the e-binos, which is the first rule of being anything evidence-based or trying to break through confidence biases, being a self-skeptic and saying, okay, I think this, can I prove myself wrong? Right. Right. Uh, And, and
0: doing that on a, on a very frequent basis.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because even you, with the amount of success that you find through your work, can develop confidence. But that confidence could always erode into a confirmation bias. Oh,
1: the, the biggest stereotype for the neurodocs in the, yes, that's what in, I was about to say. Community <laughs> is is that they think they're better and they're Stripey, and Stripey socks solve all things. Right, exactly. Um, like. Uh, it's like we we talk we joke all around about um we we joke around about oh like hit coc one but we could also make the same joke about some people in my profession or in my sector of the profession of just saying oh all you got to do is just turn their hair back head back and forth and that fixes everything or <laughs> uh, just spin them in a quarter million dollar chair that's, that's the right. only way to get people better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's ubiquitous throughout, not just our profession, but that's what we're talking about here. But that's ubiquitous through all, all of the aspects of our profession. So the rehab people are going to say that. The kettlebell people are going to say the same thing. The, the uh, telemedicine, all you have to do is talk people through their pain. Pain science folks are going to say the same thing. They're gonna, they, they tend mm-hmm. to regress to this idea of my approach is the ultimate approach. And you can't tell me, this is the Abino thing, right? Abino, uh, there's that. uh, So it was a discussion within our Facebook group for the Chiropractic Alliance that a lot of folks within the group or within the profession in general that call themselves evidence-based are Abinos, evidence-based in name only. They're not actually evidence-based. It's actually, that's a pretty rare process to experience somebody who's actually practicing out on the mean streets of chiropractic, who's truly 100% unequivocally evidence-based because it all slides to some degree.
1: right? <laughs> it's not possible. It's not in reality. Not no, not in reality. And, and I've thought about like making a giant post in, in there just being like, look, you can't be evidence-based by itself because you're never going to find that exact population that the study was done on to know the percent success you're going to get.
0: Yeah. The, the, the statement isn't to insult your intelligence. It's to state the reality of what the world is like and what you experience when the world comes in your front door, which you have almost zero control over. Probably the exactly. only way to control what comes in your door is through marketing and saying no to things
1: that, that uh, don't suit your practice well. And honestly, we do that because Every patient that comes into my office, if it's a neuro case, they get a 30 minute consult with one of the doctors. If it's a musculoskeletal case, they get a 15 minute consult with one of the doctors. If it's a nutrition case, they get a 15 minute consult with our nutritionist. Why not start managing expectations Yes. right as soon as our first words with them? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's perfect.
0: Uh, most of the field docs are not doing that, you know, because of things that you've stated before and money, and they've got to take what comes in off the street or what insurance plan they're in. Mm-hmm. And your ability to, uh, I don't know, navigate the waters of evidence sometimes is is treacherous. <laughs> you might be on a three hour tour with some patients and mm-hmm. end up end up some on this people, island.
1: Sometimes, sometimes the patients just want to drive their care and for certain practice models that's part of the people coming in so if you want to be like an a la carte adjustment that might be what exactly what the patient wants and you might not be delivering high level healthcare and clinical decision making to the 10th degree sometimes you just got to make sure it's safe to work with them and just give them what they want and be okay with that it's it's like let the market decide different segments to your business you don't have to think that you have one giant segment that covers everything, and that's where we run into issues because, yes, why don't chiropractors refer? Because they think all patients is one segment of their business.
0: Uh, you, I mean, you nailed it. I was thinking of specific examples, and practicing in Portland, I've definitely seen essentially two styles so there's hundreds of styles, but then we can break them down to this other sort of distinction. One style would be definitely healthcare oriented chiropractic where you're trying to mm-hmm. sort of solve a problem, whether it's musculoskeletal, neurological, whatever you want to call it. And then there was sort of a spa delivery approach to chiropractic, which was more sort of just having people feel good and enjoy being in your office. Uh, in in my state and in my community in Portland, Oregon, it's, it's because basically the finances drive that. Massage pays so well, that you would be a fool not to have massage therapists on your staff practicing in the state of Oregon but not in this idea of evidence-based sort of musculoskeletal medicalized massage care i mean they're literally giving feel good massages 15 minutes 30 minutes whatever now where that come where that becomes an issue is another thing you would be a fool not to care for in Oregon is motor vehicle accidents because of personal injury protection laws in Oregon. They pay, they they pay well. So what you see here is you see folks that are running sort of like spa style practices. We're, we're adjusting to feel good. We're going to get you some massages so you're happy. Oh, no, you've been in a car accident. Now I'm going to take that hat off, the happy doc hat, and I'm going to put on the, now I'm a technical rehab clinician hat and then all of a sudden play like problem solving doctor and i think a lot of these docs get in trouble along the way because they're not you can't do both
1: really well or you can't do both to every patient yeah that's a good way to put it too because it's they can't like we get okay so very rarely will I hire a doc right out of school, and the reason is is because a lot of docs come right out of school and they think that there's a certain way to practice, exactly. but the they don't learn that in school because it's not school's responsibility to teach them that. The school's responsibility is to just make them an effective doctor. The industry is supposed to teach them, hey, this is just how this is how you make a chiropractor chiropr- money doing it, and I think that. One of the main, especially like PIP in Oregon, my buddy, my buddy runs a very successful PIP practice there. And I was talking to him and think about it like this. He's able to, with what's within air quotes, with what's within med legal ability, he's able to bill for a higher hourly rate than I can as a neurological specialist. Mm -hmm. When you start doing all the math and putting it all together, especially if you're trying to do it in a way that actually gets the patient better. Um, If you want to make a, a, just like a Rube Goldberg machine, where you put, but instead of a ball rolling through, you just have the patient rolling through. Yeah, buddy. And yeah. that's how. And then they get to the end, and you just go ching, like yeah, you can make a lot of things profitable. But what really drives the standard of care, it's reimbursement, or at least what the pa- patient is willing to pay. And if it's a PI, then it kind of. Changes the whole way you focus on the way you work, and it but it also skews um, future directions of what the questions that we need to ask. Like I still think that there's few main questions that need to be answered before we can move our profession forward. Not what is the average chiropractic salary, but what are the salaries, and is it a bimodal curve? And if you're familiar with stats, I'm a hundred percent sure that it's a bimodal curve where you have that 70% the $70,000 average, I'm pretty sure that is a big hump well before it. And then there's a smaller hump, right after it, for all the people who own a business and have been in practice for a while. And for the people who are just trying to be a chiropractor and have a job as a chiropractor.
0: Yes, totally bimodal curve, without a doubt, uh, without a doubt, I think any anyone who's had experience in this profession would agree with that statement. They're, exactly it, it's you know and when you're a young doc you start calling it like a situation a situation of haves and have-nots like there's they start to have a i don't know if i want to call it a prejudice or a resentment or even a, a hatred for the docs who have with little mm-hmm. appreciation for what it took for that doc to get out of the first primary curve of this bim- bimodal example right right like, Many, many, mo- not most, because they are also legacy chiropractors, and there, are uh, I mean, there's so many different stories for how success is gained in this profession. But many, many chiropractors at some point started in the first curve. They started on the struggle bus, and then they, they sort of figured out a way, or they, <laughs> like a marathon of attrition, they just, they just won the race and survived long enough to finally be successful.
1: I agree. And I went through that as well. My first job, I went out and I was like, okay, what are my expectations? And they weren't really given to me. A lot of it was, yeah, just, just, you'll be fine. Just do these like things. And I, they didn't work out. And I was like, there needs to be more training. Yeah. needs to be from communication to what is standard of practice to what you need to do. And I didn't come out of school with just a basic DC. I came out of school with a sports medicine master's and the neuro stuff, like all done already. So it wasn't just like basic, like knowledge and, and uh, like awareness of conditions and diagnostic skills and treatment skills. Wasn't the issue. It was patient management is an issue. um, And patient acquisition is an issue. And then I learned after I left that job, that's when I started learning. I was like, okay, I need to go read about business. And how to run that. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful and lucky and grateful that I have family members who like my has owned an independent pharmacy since 1929 in in Brooklyn, New York. So small business is a separate beast. But then I also have family members that are venture capitalists who have like run huge biotech firms in the Boston area. So you learn a lot from asking people. And one of the things that I always recommend new chiros to learn is don't just ask chiropractors how to run a chiropractic business, ask people who are running a successful business now at a large scale and then figure out how to scale it back to a smaller thing with a low, with a smaller budget. Right. I think if you, if you're a young doc and then you're
0: asking an older experienced doc who's had success, how to run a business, they'll tell you some things, but they probably aren't even going to apply to you because they're not going to be the, they're not going to tell you the part of the first five years where they were eating ramen <laughs> you know, they're going to be like, okay, Jenny or Jimmy, you're asking me this great question. Let me tell you the first five years, you just have to get kicked in the teeth over and over again until you figure it out. They're going yeah. to be like, you know, oh, you use this system and you use this software and make sure you're on this insurance panel. And that stuff's not, you're not even there yet when
1: it, when you're young, like patient this acquisition is, is huge like how to structure your business, how to pay how to when you're hiring (laughs) somebody, like what is an appropriate amount and how do you budget for a business? And my biggest pet peeve is when you see older doc. Okay, so one thing I do make enemies because I've done this all my life is I'll ask people for advice and I will say, okay, you're not where I want to be, but you have advice that may get me where I want to go. But if I take all your advice at the same time and only do what you tell me, it's only going to lead me to the position you're at now, which may not be a viable position thirty years later or twenty years later. So, one of the things I highly recommend is finding somebody who can give you tangible advice for a how-to. Like one of the best advices I ever got was from one of my VC cousins who said, "Well, the first thing you have to do is go take a, ca- a class in accounting. Usually, you take it. He's like, usually you take it at a community college, but now you can just go online and do that." So I bought a $15 class on Udemy on accounting, and that made the world of a difference from how I manage money in a business because I had an understanding of it. I didn't need to be an accountant, but basic accounting was more than enough to make that work. Very interesting to me because
0: you've kind of um, distorted my expectations there. I've always sort of had the expectation that the alphabet after the name Professionals are the opposite of you, that they are completionists, you know, like they're going to go and get the board certification and go all the way through a program, uh, not just to get the letters and the certification, but that's just the type of person they are, to go all the way through a program uh, and not, not Udemy their way through information. While I'm the opposite, I'm almost opposed on some levels to going all the way through a certification process but taking everything, like you have said, like taking everything that I feel tangible to what I want to do, and then applying it appropriately, based on all information that's available, and then using my intuition. So I'm kind of, um, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a robot in a skin suit, but I'm impressed in how much intuition you utilize in your life. You know, um... intuitive learning and
1: taking people's advice is, I'm impressed. Oh, well, but that's the most important part is to learn from other people. But you got to find yeah. people that are worth learning from.
0: Well, that's why the uh, FTCA exists, by the way. So like the his- history lesson was all the stuff that we were talking about, all the stuff that we've ever talked about. In my in my youthful days, you had to pay somebody. You had to pay like a breakthrough coaching or whatever, ethical coaching or praise Jesus coaching Whatever the coaching program was, you had to pay them a pretty hefty monthly fee to be part of their club. And you would get the same advice that we were dropping within the FTCA group to each other. We totally democratize the process. A lot of those consulting businesses don't exist the way they used to which was just like you pay us a bunch of money a month and you're locked in for like a year or two of a contract. And if you get out, you owe us money too. And we, mm-hmm. you know, these Facebook groups started, and it's just like, no, let's just talk about it. And you start to realize who, who inside these Facebook groups you should not be listening to and then who you can actually respect. And you start to
1: hopefully build bonds that way. Basically, if you make a giant post about how not not having success is because you don't want it enough, that's where I'm like, okay, that probably won't work out for me cause that doesn't show me how to take the next step. But, uh, but like when we, when they had that spotlight FTCA member thing, which I, which I got, which I was lucky to have, um, th- I, I'm very thankful for that. And that's what the, uh, like the problem, every business has a problem they're trying to solve. And for FTCA, uh, especially when I first joined it was the problem it was solving was a little vicious, which I appreciated because I'm not the type to sit around and just be like, well, here's an ideal, but also um, the the people in the group and that I miss the, the way they test you. If you give an opinion you better be able to defend. yourself. And it's not because it's, it's less of an offensive group and more of a defensive group where you get to go in there and you have conversations and you learn because it challenges you to bring your thoughts to the next level. And I, when I did that thing, I listed a bunch of the names of people that I listened that I really appreciate the value from. Uh, because, yeah, it's we we have to recognize we have to recognize and respect where other people have come from. Um, and, but at the same time, we also have to recognize that, like, my favorite part. Okay, so I've read so many marketing books at this point, and half the marketing books are from a guy or a gal who had success and it was really because it fell in their lap. And then they write a book because they had success. That's right. And it's all about timing. And so I think that's something when you're talking about anything that you're doing is just timing it well, or just being lucky enough for the time to, to work in your favor. And if it doesn't, then yes, continue grinding, but don't plan B shouldn't be to plan a harder. It should always be have a couple things that you're working on in the background. So that way you can use data to figure out, OK, we tried testing this, but I didn't go full in. How do I go? And to your point about um, thinking that I was like an all or nothing person, I'm definitely not. I'm a person where I understand what I don't know, and I spend a lot of time trying to figure out where that line is. So that way I can nudge that line over and find out, is this something that I'm good. That's that would be in my skill set. Accounting is not in my skill (laughs) set. I am not a budget finance numbers person. I'm more of an analytics numbers person and a strategy person and operations person. But for me to know what questions to ask my accountant and for me to know how to structure other parts of the business, I needed to have a basic knowledge of accounting. That's the same reason I have a basic knowledge of copywriting. That's the same reason I have a basic knowledge of marketing and marketing strategy. And because I know that those are skill sets that you need to at least be familiar with and respect that there's a whole field there. Um, even if you're not the person to travel all the way through, because I like skiing and I like sleeping too.
0: <laughs> well, you don't have to defend me. You don't have to, I mean, you don't have to defend yourself to me. I'm just some dude, but I do appreciate when I see people who break whatever sort of norms, I think, people behave in because i think in chiropractic specifically there there's always been a legacy if you have to be a certain way or you have to behave a certain way or you have to say specific things or operate in certain ways and we might have shucked that off a little bit when we talk about subluxation or the vitalistic approach and how the the abinos or anybody else kind of do it a little bit different But I'm going even a step further and I'm telling students who are like, well, how do I practice like this guy and how do I do what this lady does in her practice? And I'm like, you can't, you have to do you. And so when I do actually see people shrugging that idea of of becoming a commodity and repetition to generate success when people are going out and learning their own things and really stepping out on their own, I get really excited that people are innovating because this is entrepreneurship and you do have to have, I would say some level of ingenuity. And we have, um, we have interns. So the FTCA and the chiropractic success Academy, we have a set of interns, uh, wonderful students. And they, we monthly we sit and we have a meeting about business and marketing and all these things that they're not learning in school and their minds are getting completely blown by this information that they can't and they won't be and they shouldn't be exposed to by their school they need someone else to do it and one of the guys he is a mirror image of me when i was that age military veteran clean cut uh kind i used to be kind polite uh considerate <laughs> y- yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am clean haircuts you know uh no outward sort of blemishes And I'm like, dude, you you need a mohawk or the Mike Tyson face tattoo. You need some sort of edge in this game. And the edge doesn't have to be appearance. That was just kind of my joke that you need a mohawk or a tattoo. But you're right, though. You need some sort of edge that distinguishes you from other
1: people. Because right now we have something very different than everybody had when they started off their practice in 2005. We have social media. Yeah, like I know what I was on Facebook when it was still like you needed to have a college email, and I had it. it was like <laughs> the first round of high school people to have Facebook, where you had to be invited by somebody who was in college, yeah, to join Facebook, and that is a huge difference because it created a BS economy, an economy where BSers now have an edge That's because right. you that is, and that I think is what is creating one of the biggest opportunities is all you have to do is go in and give actual good information and it could stand out if done in an appropriate way but these are things that people aren't going through their yellow pages people aren't stopping by at their at the end of their 5k like I did it I was at the end of the 5ks when I went my, my first job and I had more patients come in looking for a massage from me than they did for actual chiropractic care. And I was like, clearly there's a whole marketing and branding and positioning issue with this whole thing. And I think that's the problem to solve. And that's one of my problems to solve with how I'm choosing to run this business is the idea of chiropractors eating their young. You're not gonna fix it just by talking about it. And you're not gonna fix it just by saying, hey, we should pay people more because the economy could, because inflation's more. No, you have to build an you have to build an entire industry that collects more money. So we can pay people, pay people more. That's right. It's a value-based system still all the way through. Right. We, and it's like when I talk to all my friends who are in consulting and they're like, what do I do for work? I don't do anything. I just create value. I, I don't do work. I just make things more valuable. And then somebody else does the work down the road. That's sort of, we all like to sit in the consulting mindset, but in reality, we still have a lot of heavy lifting to do in this profession that we're not ready to be consultants. We need to be moving. And you've done a lot where you created an entire space for people who don't like this idea of everybody's okay if they have an opinion. Sometimes opinions need to be challenged. And I think that's the first step for getting people uncomfortable so they recognize that there is something to improve.
0: I personally learned a lot from being uncomfortable. Um, so I see value in it. And I know not everybody comes from that perspective. I respect everybody's ability to come from a different point of view, but all I can express is my point of view and then listen the best I can. And I think we have over time, we've gone from this, that the model of chiropractic was just like this model of of social media. It was a like economy to start. It was look at me and I'm going to say stuff. So outlandish, you know, you're Billy DeMoss types and people even before that we're going against the medical industry. So we have to be so outlandish that we get eyes on us. And once the eyes are on us, then we're going to sell them. And we're in that in social media right now where it's like, there's a like economy. Look at me and it doesn't matter what i'm selling you just as long as you're looking at me now i get to make the sale what we did or what everyone has done in the evidence informed world has said well we got to make that different we can't just say look at me and then sell them trash we have to say look at me and then sell them something that is valuable and good and uh, you know air quotes one more time right uh, i've have i've had a a big internal philosophical debate with what is right and what is not right in the world, you know. But you would hope to do that in social media too. Look at me, and then give them valuable, uh, real, tangible, and worthwhile information uh, that they they can actually value and and would trust you to listen to you again when you say, "Look
1: at me." And that's my next big project: is how do I create a better, more accurate. Uh, quick message to compete with what everybody else is doing because you're not going to get everybody to look but you can get the people who are trying to do a deep dive and if Mm -hmm. we can get one less person to think that serotonin is a thing that that reduces anxiety or get one less person (laughs) to think that GABA is what you should give to calm people down like that'd be good yeah it would be it would be amazing because you're stopping future problems and it just comes down to, um, or my, my big one, and this is in the presentation, why uh, cortisol isn't the thing that's waking you up at 2 to 4 a.m. Um, that's the funniest thing ever, the idea that they do a cortisol test throughout the day to get an idea of what your cortisol is doing at night. No, you can't, you can't measure that. So everybody just says, oh, cortisol is a bad thing, but it's not the thing that's causing the problem. That's in the presentation as well.
0: Oh, well, everyone's going to check this presentation out. You can go to forwardthinkingcairo.com and you can register for the virtual summit. Uh, it's free to register, by the way. So the, here's here's the idea of these virtual summits. Collect, create a stage for people who do not have a stage yet is the primary idea. It's been the primary idea of the FTCA from the beginning. When I got first got on social media, just like you, and uh, I had a... They had a girlfriend who just graduated from college and she had a, one of those college Facebook accounts. She's like, okay, I can get you one. Cause they wouldn't, they wouldn't even give, you know, you're like, well, I am in college. I'm in chiropractic college. It's like, no, that's not a real college. We're not giving you a Facebook account. <laughs> um, Back then, your... I was just like, wow, there are really crappy people giving advice in these chiropractic groups how do these morons get a stage? And one of the morons was like, you know what? You can always just create your own group. And then you don't have, these guys don't get a stage at all. And uh, I said, okay, I'll do that. And I said, from this venue that, that we have created here where everyone seems to be of a a singular like mind, (laughs) I didn't Mm -hmm. even put air quotes on that one. So let's find out who is, who is worthy of a stage. And we don't always get that 100%, right? You have to give everybody a chance. But over time, the ecosystem has created people that people do trust to listen to. And the ecosystem has also removed people who are not worth trusting and listening to. So it's very organic in that manner. Um, So these virtual summits are an extension of that. Now we want to give people a presentation stage. And we have live events to give people these presentation stages and hopefully, and we have in the past, hopefully we create future superstars for the profession through our venues. So, uh, and I consider you one of them. I think you're brilliant. Um, Not just brilliant, like academically, I think you are demonstrating yourself as a, um, what would you call it, a intellectually
1: stimulating person to be around, even if you don't believe in passion. It's that's that was actually thinking about that today because it was it was an interesting conversation because you just start pick because then you start thinking about more and more words that are associated with it and I've always been this type of person where like you might not like what you're doing you might hate it or you might feel like it's really a waste of time but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it well because you're doing yeah. it for
0: background for listeners there was a discussion about whether or not you need to be passionate to be successful, passionate with what you're doing. And I think we agree and disagree at the same time. Like, yeah, I've always said, don't, because they always give that bad advice. and just kind of like what you alluded to before. Like it's always like a millionaire that'll say, follow your passions. When a young person asks like, what should I do in my life? And the millionaire will be like, follow your passions and you'll get there no matter what. And it's like, yeah, that millionaire worked for, was like a chemist or like sold uh, copper ore why? Wi- or yeah they had a patent <laughs> or something. like they weren't passionate about any of that stuff and then once they got a million dollars and they're all passionate about a whole lot of shit right because uh it's easy to be passionate in a mercedes versus a kia <laughs> you know? and and so it's like don't i'm trying like i've heard i forget who said it but uh the author of the book called the four i forget his name Cause it's just too normal of a name to remember. But he also says like, you've, you try to find something you're really, really good at. And if you keep focusing on the thing you're really, really good at, you're going to find a passion for it instead of yeah. trying to follow a passion. And then hopefully you're good at it. Like, okay. So you're passionate about um, tribal, zam- yeah. Tribal dance of Martians. Like there's just not, and you think you're going to make a million dollars off of that or whatever. Like there's just not a whole lot of market for Martian tribal dance. Um,
1: I also view it from the point of just because you're pat like when you look at these people who are the ones giving advice, those are the people who have enough wealth and to, to be able to sit back and say, oh, no, work wasn't important. It wasn't important. I could have taken time. I should have taken off more time. And I'm like, well, you only can sit back and say that because you work so hard to a position where you can take time off the luxury. Um, what a, one of my biggest role models was, was my grandmother who inner city school teacher, single mother for uh, inner city school teacher for 35 years in Bedford, Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, which was one of those places that was so bad where if anybody's a Billy Joel fan out there, he has it in his song. You may be right uh, about it's a place you don't walk alone at night or during the day. And she worked there for 35 years during that time. And she didn't have the, oh yeah, I wish I worked less because she had to, she had to work. There was no options, but was she passionate about her work? No, but she was good about it. And there's some wisdom and nobility in that as well, where you can do something that you don't need to be emotionally attached to. You can just do a good job and have a legacy left that way. And I think that's something very important to look at because it, it means that it taught me two things. First thing is just because you don't like doing it doesn't mean you can still cut corners. And the other thing it taught you is keep working. And then all of a sudden you'll have an ability to do things you are passionate about at some point.
0: You start spilling on your
1: passions, yeah. And that and I didn't really have a passion. Like I don't have a passion for chiropractic. I don't know if you can tell by all my posts, <laughs> but I have a passion for ethically helping people. And I have a passion for organizing, making things better. Looking at something, seeing there's a problem and finding a tangible, sustainable way to make it better. And I found while I was working on this that I find way more passion. I, I re- like So we're doing uh, my first merger, my first uh, clinic acquisition this this fall. Because somebody was watching how I was running my business and said, you know what? I never thought I'd work for anybody else. But watching the way that you treat your employees, watching the way that you run your business, I want in. And that ended up actually being the most, like, that was the most, like, I've helped people with really complicated conditions. that, And they're, like, sitting and crying. And I'm like, great, I did my job but I didn't feel passionate about it. I was like proud of myself because I did my job. And if they didn't get her, I'd be like, you know what? I didn't I, I didn't succeed. Success is meeting expectations for me. And for me to come back and then say, wait, a thing I built that was not necessary, that was not my responsibility and was not an expectation of me was so good that somebody else wants to basically almost give me a practice because of how it's running i was like that was the thing that i where i first figured out where my passions lie
0: that's good my my only take is that people do have to have a passion not yes. doesn't, have, doesn't have to be work it could be like you skiing like me the outdoors yeah. um it, but some there are some things in life that do uh i don't want to use the word require some things in life are passion is somewhat fundamental and really enhance the flavor of the situation. Like you, the, 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 it's not an argument. The discussion here is you can accomplish great things. You don't have to have passion to accomplish great things. But I would say things like a marriage. You can have a successful marriage without passion. I just don't think that in 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 the cultural milieu that I live in, you would want a marriage that would be defined as successful but not passionate. You could be in a band and you could you can make and play great music and not be passionate about it. I would just say, if I was to be in a band, I wouldn't want to do it unless I was passionate about what I was doing. Like, uh, and you could take that in a thousand different metaphors right like if you were cooking you can make great meals and not really be passionate i'm definitely that's my category i'm not that passionate about cooking but people say my cooking's pretty darn good um so so do you understand the distinction there that i make in my conversations i actually yeah. don't think i'm very good putting my i think i'm starting to get better at putting my thoughts into words than i am typing and That might be a really great progression for a man because it's much easier to type out what you're feeling than get it out of your brain and just say it impromptu. But I think doing this podcast has helped me with that. Like I'm, I'm trying to tell him what I'm thinking over the Facebook and I'm not making my own sense to myself. And then I'll come back and I'll just think it in my mind and be like, that's what I should have said. So I'm glad that I get to podcast with Mike in a couple hours and I can say I just think there are some things like is would if you were just a good skier black diamond you can you can take any challenge you want would it be as satisfying as if in if you didn't just if you didn't love
1: skiing well here's the thing it depends on what the passion's about. For me, skiing is getting is being out where there's silence yeah, and where you can explore the world and you kind of get this childlike wonder where you just get to go someplace new and I think see that's something new is, that you've never way. seen before.
0: I think passion is childlike wonder, yeah.
1: And for me, I don't have childlike wonder when I'm working with patients, unfortunately. I don't have childlike wonder when I'm running my business. But... I do have that when I'm skiing. So you can have passion for other things, but I think it's an important lesson that for two things. First is you can do great things without being passionate in the moment. And second thing, like I discovered, you might find a passion for something many years down the road. And we're talking about, I've been in practice seven years now. Year seven is when I figured out where my work-related passion was. Yeah. And so for people who are listening to this, who are trying to like figure out, like they they just got out of school and they're like, all these people are so rah, rah. And then you got people posting who have been in practice for a while saying, this is what I would never do anything else. I love what I do. I do all this. And you're just sitting there like, you know what I also love putting food on my table a roof over my head. Yeah. Uh, I don't. And personally as somebody who I made more selling ski boots at a ski shop than I did as an associate my first two years. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I had way more passion doing that, but it still wasn't enough money to like make ends meet in with a inflating economy. It wasn't generational wealth. (laughs) It wasn't generational wealth. I started my business with $500 and no savings. So it's, you can work hard. You can work your butt off without having passion for it just because you know it's the right thing to do and it'll take you someplace and you can figure out the next step later.
0: Yes, I think we are both antithetical to the idea that you just need to follow your passions in chiropractic and it's all going to work out for you if you're just passionate enough. That is, uh, what do they say in France? That is bullshit. <laughs> it is much better, much better to just be really open to the process. Yeah do good work be a good do your damn job and do it really good with a smile on your face you don't have to be passionate to have a smile on your face as yeah. as time goes on you're going to find out what you're really really good at and you're going to gravitate towards that and oh my gosh it might even become a passion and it might not
1: funny story from undergrad. Do a good job right funny story from undergrad when when i was pledging i had to clean a bathroom And one of the people looked at me, he's like, I've never seen a bathroom so clean before. And I was like, you told me to clean a bathroom and I was going to do it till it was done. And that in itself is I have no passion for cleaning bathrooms. I have no passion for cleaning itself. But you can just do good work and you can just take it one extra step further. And maybe that's what opens the door for something for you to be passionate about.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to end the conversation because this is a great, this is one of the reasons the FTCA started. It was, it was this um, recognition that too many people were putting too many calories into chiropractic. Like in, in the military, we had this term called ate up. It meant you were just overly consumed with the idea. So that in the military, there'd be like. There would be people in your squadron or your platoon or whatever. They were eight up on the military. Like they were just all military all the time, even off duty. And there are just people who are eight up about chiropractic. It's chiropractic 24-7. They go to the baseball game, they're a chiropractor. They go to the supermarket, they're a chiropractor. They go to a church, they're a chiropractor. Everything they do, chiropractic all the time. ABC, always be closing. And people had told them they had to do that. And the calorie burn on that was tremendous, and I just felt like it took the humanity out of what it means to be somebody who serves other people, who cares, uh, and it took the the opportunity for you to experience life, which is the reason why we do this. The reason why we got into this to pick a career was we wanted a better life for ourselves. We thought we were worth sir, we were worth something. We were going to go get this degree and be better. Uh, humans with it so the whole purpose of this whole damn thing in the first place was to have a better life and to do something of value but all that got sucked away from so many people who had to burn a bunch of calories on being a chiropractor 24 7 so ftca started as like this place where let's be humans for a little while human chiropractors and let's let the humanity part show which is ugly but pretty and sad and happy and disagrees with you and agrees with you and supports you and tells you you're a dumbass all at the same time. And let's do that here in a silly Facebook group.
1: Yeah. And though that last two parts, supports you and tells you are a dumbass, might might have been the same thing too. <laughs> it might have been in the still, same sentence. <laughs> yeah. And, but that's the whole thing is that's where, that's what I thought when I when I first joined up, like the problem that they're solving. I'm a fan. That's what drove me to have the pa- more passion in following the, the group was that, it was that kind of those lines, which was, all right, you have room to improve. Can you, you think, you know, this much, good job. There's still 10 more steps to take, but I do. Um, based on what, what you were saying, when you're talking about like, oh, man, I forget, I forget what I was going to say there. Cause it was, you you're wrapping up pretty well, but what it comes down to is just keep working hard, but you, Oh no, it was the part about like, so my first job, I just moved to a new area for this job and I had a choice. Either I make friends or I go and I sell to them. And for some people who are super charismatic, they're able to do that. But for other people who, like you described, air quotes, a robot in in skin, you got to kind of pick one or the other. You you can't always be uh, everything and you can't always go out and be like, Maybe at the end of the workday, you don't want to go and hang out with all these new friends you made and say, hey, let me tell you about what I do for work and why you should come in and see me. Um, So I think part of that is one of the things I'm trying to solve is how do you create a business model that allows people to not have to be all and end all and live and breathe and die chiropractic and as you said multiple times, sacrifice, sacrifice yourself on the sword for chiropractic, maybe there's a way we can create a little bit of a happy medium where people are allowed to keep work at work sometimes and still be good at their job. Absolutely. Um, I, the, the, the
0: thing that I'm worst at, I have no passion for it is ending podcasts. Um, I, and, I can show
1: you how we do it where I'm from in New Jersey. Fucking push delete, right? Yeah, you just hit the red button. <laughs> you be like, I'll see you later. Good time. Well, here's to it. Yeah, let's
0: push that red button <laughs> and let's make the commitment to do it again sometime. How's that?
1: Always yep. down to
0: you're a you're a positive addition to this profession. I appreciate you. It's always fun to I talk appreciate to you.
1: you as well. Thank you. Right.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs>